Good morning. Well, I have the wonderful privilege of, of launching this, uh, a new sermon series. As we, uh, as Kevin told you last week, we wrapped up 1 John, and, and we're about to launch into the book of 1 Peter. And I can tell you that um, we have been really excited as we have, if we kind of just study this together and, and examine this book, um, and we're, we're just, I think the timeliness of this is going to be really good. Um, First Peter's, there's so many, so many incredible truths and so much hope in this book. Um, I mean, it's a remarkable book that I think is, as, it's as relevant today as it was in, in the time that it was written. And we've chosen, as we thought about it, we chose the hope, we chose the theme, hope for exiles. Because I think this summarizes this study and, and it's exactly, it's exactly what, what Peter intended for, for his, his original readers. So today's message is really gonna be in, in two parts. Um, in the first part, I'm gonna kind of lead us in a kind of a high-level overview of the book. And, and kind of talk about its purpose and the framework. And then, and then um, so I'll actually be teaching more today than I will be preaching as we just kind of give you the, kind of the, the, the high level view of this book. And then after that, as we've done several times now in the past, which is particularly when we have shorter epistles, um, we'll actually read the book in its entirety. And I'll have some other readers join me on stage as we, as we read this letter together um, and, and hear it just like the first readers did so many centuries ago. So um, I, today, I wanna, what I'll do is I want to f- kind of give the structure of this by answering, um, going through kind of the traditional who, what, when, where, why, and how questions to kind of give a, an overview and a, and a framework for this letter. So the first question may seem a little obvious, but we probably should still go ahead and answer it. And that's the question is, who wrote First Peter? I, I know that's kind of in some ways probably like yeah it's just like who's buried in Grant's tomb right we remember that, that growing up like well I, ironically you know there has actually has been scholars who have even recently who have who have challenged the notion that that the apostle Peter was the author um, and that's based primarily on the on the kind of the writing style that just seemed too well written for a Galilean fisherman. Of course, on the contrary, I would you know we would I would say that you know, if you look back at at, at in Acts four thirteen. We hear uh, the same argument that people were, after hearing Peter and John preaching for the first time, we read that they were amazed at the oratory skill and the boldness that displayed in what they called uneducated and untrained fishermen. So I would say that if the Holy Spirit can upgrade the speaking style of these men, he can, still, he can certainly upgrade their writing style as well. And of course, that's not to mention that you think about it, Peter actually was just spent the last three years being trained by the greatest rabbi who ever lived. So um, I don't, you know, most scholars do not have a problem with the authorship of Peter um, with, with this book. And of course, they would contend that we, as we read in, first, in the very first, first, first words of verse one, it defines the author, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we would, I think we would contend, as, as most scholars would, that Peter is indeed the author of this book. It's most likely that Peter, Peter probably wrote this book in the latter years of his life. Um, we indicate that he was probably in Rome shortly before he was, he was martyred. If you look at the end, it says in 513, it says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting as does Mark, my son. Now, there's a few things in there that kind of probably needs to explain. Who is the she? 
And I would say it's generally agreed that the she does not refer to a, a female or to his wife. Um, it refers uh, to the Christian community. The, the church is, is, is who he's referring to. The, the church is, is who's with him. Um, and then the, the reference to Babylon is pretty much universally agreed that this is a reference to Rome. This was a, this was a the, 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 making the characterization that this was another great and corrupt city where the people of God were being exiled to, just as the original Babylon was. Babylon was, up, was ruins by this time, so it couldn't have been referring to actual Babylon. There's no evidence that he was actually in the city of Babylon. And then the last thing, Mark um, would most likely refer to John Mark, who was, we read about many places in the New Testament and was a frequent companion of Peter. Um, it was not his literal son. So a little bit about Peter. Most of you, some of you may know this, but, but you know, Peter was one of, the, one of the 12 disciples. And like John, he was, um, like James and John, he was part of Jesus's inner circle. Peter and James and John, they, they got to see things and do things with Jesus that the other disciples did not. They, they, they were the closest to Jesus. And we know that Peter was, was often the, the spokesperson for the other disciples, which, as we read, was, was both good and bad. As Peter often had the, the reputation of being the, the boldest as well as the most impulsive of the disciples. I say Peter is, is a, typified in what we call in Texas a shoot-ready-aim guy, if you know what that means, right? Sometimes that went well. We think of the times when, when Peter was the first one to jump out of the boat, to go to walk on water towards Jesus which was a wonderful display of faith. He was also the first to proclaim Jesus as being the Messiah, the son, the, the son of the living God. But on the other hand, Peter was also rebuked by Jesus for impulsively trying to tell him that he would never allow him to be arrested and killed, followed by the famous words, he said, get thee behind me, Satan. That's not something you typically want to hear the savior of the world say to you, Right? Peter also boasted that he would never deny knowing Jesus as the Christ. But of course, he proceeded to do just that when Jesus was arrested. And unlike his, but unlike his counterpart Judas, Peter repented for his betrayal. And it was subsequently restored to Jesus after the resurrection. And from there on, as we know, he went on to become the first and the boldest preacher of the gospel in the early church. Peter fulfilled his Christ-proclaimed destiny as the rock that Jesus would build his church upon. So quickly, the second question, who was it written to? Who say it was written by Peter, who, who was he writing it to? Well, again, we can look and we can learn in verse one, Peter tells us, it says, Peter's writing to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I've put a map up on the screen. Um, I think there's a map on it. There we go. Uh, where you can kind of see where this is in, the, this is in, the, in modern day Turkey, in Asia, kind of right, you see just north of the, of the Mediterranean, you see Jerusalem and Rome. So you see the, the, the characteristics, kind of where it is geographically. Now, these areas, these were not cities, these were regions um, within the Roman Empire. Um, and you can see that they were mostly outside of Paul's missionary journey. Most of Paul was in, he kind of focused more in, in southern 
Asia Minor, or what we call Southern Turkey. Um, so we, we don't really know, either historically or from Scripture, um, why Peter is writing to these areas specifically, or why he's focusing on these. It's thought that it's maybe possible that this was the path that he took when he went to Rome. Um, but there's no evidence to support that written-wise, so we can't say that for sure. And, and here's, the, here's where it gets really unique, because when you read that, when you read verse 1, it would seem like the easy interpretation would be that the elect exiles of the dispersion would refer to, to Jewish Christians who were scattered by the persecution in Jerusalem. They were there certainly, there, we, we talk about the diaspora, the dispersion, and these you know, Jews have been exiles throughout history. But here's where, this is where, this is where Peter just starts to, to, to just jump off the page. Because almost all scholars are, are unanimous in agreement based on, as we will see in the weeks to come, multiple clues throughout the book that the recipients of the letter were actually mostly Gentiles. And we'll be highlighting those clues more in detail as we work through the book. But this is the beautiful heart of this letter. And that is that Peter is identifying these mostly Christian Gentiles as the true descendants of Abraham. As they're going through this, this persecutor, they're being persecuted, as you'll see, is the purpose of this. And he wants to encourage them by telling them of their identity. And their identity is the true descendants of Abraham. And they are the true children of God. Just as the Jews were once the chosen exiles, captured and forced to live in lands that was not their home, and they longed for the promised land of Israel. Well, Peter is painting a Christian, an idea that, that all Christians, even us today, are now this spiritual equivalent, exiled strangers on this earth, enduring great hardship as we wander toward our true eternal home that awaits us at the end of life's journey. I had the privilege of, of, of knowing John Perkle really well. And as I, as I studied this week, I couldn't help seeing John in this story. Those of you who knew John, John suffered the cancer. He suffered as, as much as anybody I've ever seen suffer with cancer for a prolonged period of time. Years that he, he struggled and, and he never wavered from his faith. He never complained. He never blamed God because he had his eye on the prize that he attained this week. And that's why I've, I love the, this picture, even as I've studied the, the beautiful, like John, John is, the, is the fulfillment of what we're studying here, who we're all longing for. We, we will miss John, but boy, do we look forward and celebrate that John has finished the race. He's finished his course. We can celebrate that with him. Question three, when was it written? When, does, when, when was this book written? So we have a historical context of this. The general consensus is that 1 Peter was written for those, particularly those who would, who would affirm that, that Peter was the author, that the book was written around 62 or 63 AD. Peter was most likely, history would say that Peter was most likely martyred in 64 AD as part of Nero's. Nero was the emperor at this time. Um, and uh, there was an increasing persecution of the Christians particularly following Rome's burning in July of that year. And that Peter was, was martyred shortly after Rome's burning. Now, Peter would certainly have been in Rome by this time, as would, as, we see, as we'll read about this guy named Silvanus. 
who's identified in chapter five as identified as a person who's the, who is charged with delivering this letter. He was the one who went around that, all, those, all those areas and, deliver, and read this letter and delivered this letter to them. Um, now, Silvanus, interestingly enough, is the, is the Roman name for Silas. Someone, there's a name we're, we're all pretty familiar with if you're familiar with the New Testament. Um, Silas is best known as the, as the traveling companion of Paul on all of his missionary journeys. Now, we know that Paul's uh, missionary journeys typically were from late, the late 40s AD to about the late 50s AD. And so that would leave room that at this time, Paul was also already in Rome. Silas would have been in Rome. Peter was in Rome. So they were all there during this time. It would make sense. It was prior to his, his martyrdom and it would end those, those early 60s where he likely wrote this letter. And then finally, next we come to the big question. We got some of the demographic stuff done, but why? The grand question, why did he write this letter? Why would he do this? Well, fortunately, just like, like John did in, uh, in 1 John, where he kind of identifies, he had that wonderful verse where he identifies, well, this is why I wrote it. Peace, Peter also gives a summary statement for the purpose of his letter. And we see the summary statement in chapter 5, verse 12, which reads, through Silvanus, there's, that, there's, there's Silas, through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I, can, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So as we'll see in the weeks ahead, Peter is writing to encourage these believers throughout Asia Minor um, who are experiencing an increasing persecution for their faith. The true grace of God that he is testifying to is the hope not found in the absence of persecution, not found in the absence of suffering, but rather hope found in the midst of it. The true grace of God is found in understanding your God-given identity and your God-ordained destiny. And when understood rightly, these provide the hope, the courage, and the motivation to live God-honoring lives in this world where we are strangers and exiles. This is the message of 1 Peter Peter is writing to, to exhort these, these followers of Jesus to stand firm in their faith. He wants them to identify with their Jewish predecessors who were also persecuted exiles. I love that. I think the, the book of 1 Peter, Peter really echoes the message of the writer of Hebrews who proclaims in the midst of describing the, the heroes of the faith in the great chapter 11 of, of, of Hebrews. And we read this. He says, these, all, all, these, all these biblical heroes, Moses and Abraham and all these guys, he says, they all died in the faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. But they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What a beautiful picture of the same thing that Peter's communicating in his letter. 
Peter wants to remind these followers of Jesus who are beginning to, to experience persecution for their faith to remember who they were and where they're heading. It didn't matter if they were Jews or Gentiles. If they were in Christ, then 1 Peter proclaims, you, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. You are a chosen race, a, 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 a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, when you rightly understand your identity and your destiny, the trials and tribulations of this world are simply a means to a far greater end. That's hopeful. And while Peter wants to encourage these, these persecuted believers by helping them identify with their Jewish counterparts, his greatest encouragement to them is helping them identify with the object of their faith, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who himself was exiled from his heavenly home and endured unmerited favor as he lived as an exile and a foreigner on this earth. Chapter, verse, chapter four, verse one says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding. Why? In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. And he goes on to say in verse 12 and 13, he says, dear friends, he says, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual was happening to you. Instead, Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. 2.21, he says, for you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. That's great hope. And finally, Peter's encouragement is not to just give them, them hope in the midst of persecution, but to give them purpose. As chosen exiles, their lives should look different from those around them. In chapter two, he exhorts them. He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. He tells them, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Throughout this book, he challenges them in light of their identity and their future destiny. He says things throughout the book like, live as servants of God, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, be subject, subject to your masters, even if they are unjust. Don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. This is the true grace of God that Peter states in 5.12 and implores them to stand firm in. This is the message of 1 Peter. And then finally, as, our, as, our, as the readers, other readers will go ahead and come up on the stage um, as we prepare to read the, the letter, um, the final question I want to I look at is how? How does this apply to us today? That's what we really want to know. How do I, how do we, how does this apply to us today right here in, in suburban Houston, Texas? 
And I would tell you that I would almost be inclined to ask, how does this not apply to us today? No, by the grace of God, we are currently not experiencing intense persecution for our faith. But it's certainly growing as the animosity towards Bible-believing Christians and our post-culture, post-Christian culture grows. Right? At the time of Peter's writing, Nero's persecution of Christians was not nearly as intense as it became after the burning of Rome in AD 64. But it was obviously present and it was obviously growing. And just as Peter was encouraging them in their current struggle and was preparing them for the greater persecution to come, we would be wise to listen to the gospel-focused advice of Peter today. We don't know exactly what months, what the months and years ahead hold, ahead hold for us. But I can tell you that if we were to chart the current events of today, kind of like we did the hurricane that we just narrowly avoided, we'd probably mostly agree that the trajectory is not good, is it? And therefore, we, like the chosen exiles of Asia Minor, should take heart the advice of Peter as he displays it throughout the book where he says the end of all things is near therefore be alert and sober minded for prayer dear friends don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. And the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you when? After you have suffered a little while. This is the true grace of God. This is the story of First Peter. Be encouraged. Stand firm in it. So now with this in mind, I encourage you, if you have your Bibles, follow along as we now will read this letter in its entirety. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, 
more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former <clears throat> ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence towards your time during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have purified yourself by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether it is to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone. Love the brothers and sisters. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you were called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live by righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic, loving one another, and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this, so that you may inherit a blessing. 
For the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, Don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. 
But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ as well as the one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, because he cares for, about you. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this powerful, compassionate letter. God, we hear as we read it in its entirety. We hear an older, wiser, gentler Peter pleading with, 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 with those around him who are, who are suffering persecution to keep their eyes on who they are, to keep their eyes on the prize of, where, of, the, of the wonderful reward that God, that awaits those who follow him. And in that too, to live differently, that we are to live as people with hope not in fear, not in anger. We are to, to we can submit, we can, we can serve, we can, we can endure persecution, we can endure everything because we have been given a reward beyond all compare. So Father, would you even now as we, as we start this over the weeks and months ahead, as we, as we dig deeply into this letter, God, would you change us into a people who, who are compelled by who we are and where we're going. And God, would our lives be, be changed? Would we be more compassionate, more loving? Would we endure persecution with grace? Would we be a people who don't fear whatever comes in, whatever the, the future holds? 
because we have a hope that is eternal, unshakable, that cannot be taken away. God, you make us into these people. Thank you that you have given us this beautiful letter that you wrote through Peter to encourage us who are exiles and strangers in this land. We pray this in your name, amen.